Ladies and gentlemen, we need to, I need to think of like a formal introduction for this moving forward. At some point I will. Like verbal medicine has the best intro, I think, but I need to be like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Set of Stronger podcast, uh, where we help you hit stronger, jump higher, and stay on the court for life because we care. But you know, we're not quite there yet. Um, pre-record it, and then you can just hit play. Well, there you go. I'm gonna pre-record it. Yeah, exactly. Afterwards, right? You don't even have to do it right now. You just put it in after. Well, there you go. Yeah. So one of these days, I'll wisen up and do that. But for today, Sam's back, everybody. Um, as always, we are incredibly lucky to have Sam. Um, Sam, I, I, here comes your first random question. Um, do you watch Ted Lasso? I saw the first. There's two, three seasons. I think I saw the first two seasons with my buddy. Third's out, coming up. Third's third's about to be released out in Vancouver. So I saw the first two, kind of paying attention, kind yeah. of not, but uh, good show. There's this character called Trent Krim. He's the reporter, and his his intro every time is Trent Krim, the Independent. So every time I watch your reels now, it's, hey, everybody, Sam Pedlow, former AVB pro, registered physiotherapist, coming at you from yada, 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 talking about what yada, yada. So all I can think is Sam Pedlow, the independent. And I love it. It's my favorite. I love it. Well, that's part of my brand now, I guess, is my introduction to myself. So I'll take it. At least you take you, rid of it. you'll recognize me without even seeing me. You'll just from the voice. So it's all good. And you're not even allowed to pre-record it. You have to do it. You have to do it live every time. Every yeah, single fact, time. Depending on how long the reel is, sometimes real fast. Like you gotta real fire fast. that out. <laughs> real fast. Dad jokes. <laughs> okay. Anywho, for all the one people that are left after my whole wonderful intro. Um, we're talking about shoulders today. Yes. Um, we have a lot of things to dive into. Uh, we have a lot of Sam's brain to pick. Um here's and Sam started this conversation before we started recording saying, I don't know what you're going to ask me. And I'm kind of concerned basically. So here's the, the weirdest question I can start with on this. Um, that sets the tone for everything else. Sam, what the hell is shoulder health? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you can define that in uh, like a ton of different ways. You know, I think we have, uh, maybe uh, a lens that we look through as athletes and shoulder health may have a different definition for those individuals versus say like someone from general population. And then you could fragment general population into however many categories you want, right? You think of our grandparents, their idea of shoulder health. One, it's probably something they're not even thinking of until they're actually injured. Um, but you know, the function that they require out of that joint is typically a lot different than, say, 25-year-old volleyball player, 15-year-old volleyball player, right? So shoulder health for, I would say, the general population for adolescent that aren't playing sport, it's probably nothing they're even aware of, right? If we have youth athletes, then shoulder health for them may be, you know, being able to complete training and competition in a pain-free way. Um, you know, I wouldn't include something like, oh, it's going to prevent injury because we can't necessarily make that claim. But if I were to kind of identify uh, an overarching definition of it, it would probably be something along the lines of being able to meet your activities of daily living, being able to meet your performance goals, whether that be that could be something in a work environment or it could be something in a, a sport environment. 
Um, and then the second thing would probably, uh, or third, bring in something of the mental component, like, uh, you know, a sh shoulder health gives you confidence in that tissue. Like you're not going out there and questioning, uh, like, am I going to hurt my shoulder today? You kind of know you have a comprehensive routine, whatever that might be, in order to instill confidence in yourself and whatever the activity you're undertaking is. Cool. So it's not just every single person irregardless of what they do should be able to do xyz it's dependent no. on who they are what sport they play if they play age history exactly. injury risk how much risk they're willing to take maybe yeah exactly cool so i always i like that question to start these kind of conversations because instagram is uh riddled with top three exercises for shoulder health it's like well what, what does that mean? And I, I agree completely because, well, one, we know there's no magical exercises. So one of my biggest challenges when it comes to releasing information on social media is the nuances of the information that's being released. Three exercises to bulletproof your shoulder, three exercises to help you jump higher. In my experience, most of the time, that's just like an information dump that doesn't have any context. Yes, they might be good exercises, but without putting them, uh, you know, establishing like what type of person they would be for, what type of training environment, maybe the prerequisites, the progressions, regressions. It's very difficult for me to say like, hey, try this because you know, say I have forty thousand followers, it might only directly apply to four or five right so it's about identifying where you fit in this context if it will benefit you at all so when it comes to the shoulder in particular we know that there's no one exercise that is going to fix your shoulder um in the literature we've identified that there's no magical exercise so anytime someone's saying these are the three best well it could be or it could not be it depends who you are what stage of training you're in what environment uh, there's so many, you know, internal and external factors that that we have to consider. Um, so when I try and put out that type of information, whether it be for the shoulder or, for example, today I did something on arm swing and adjusting arm swing based on a situation. So in what situation would you use like an exaggerated arm swing and which situation would you use an abbreviated arm swing? So I'm trying to make it more contextually relevant so you know when this might help you. So. For example, for shoulders, we might say like, okay, if you're having pain with follow through, then maybe a good exercise for you is working on deceleration, okay? If you have difficulty getting into end range positioning, then an exercise that helps you get into that might be the best exercise for you. But when we drop <laughs> some like three best exercises, I'm like, okay, cool. It's just, it's it's clickbait and Next. Uh, Next. works. I watch them because sometimes they have, they're oh, great. Yeah and it helps me put them in my hierarchy or my timeline of where you know shoulder health would develop across a, a continuum but i'm i'm not like typing those in for my athletes immediately because i know that really it's just clickbait yeah and i think this is the big thing especially for people in our audience probably that don't have as much experience as a registered physiotherapist as yourself they might see that and think oh crap i'm not doing these I must be doing it wrong as opposed to you that says, okay, this may maybe see a new exercise on social media. And I've done this lots where it's like, Hey, that's cool. Where does it fit into my model? What 
checks or what uh, check boxes does it tick? And what are some reasons why not why I might not use it with some of my athletes? Exactly. You have to pair the exercise with the athlete. And <clears throat> to be honest, a lot of what I see with uh, shoulders when we're talking about, okay, try these three exercises or these are the three exercises for, for shoulder health. Um, kind of the whole I'm seeing in the industry, whether it be from SNC coaches or from physios, is um, it's low level rehab is what we're seeing online. I mean, there's not a lot of people you're seeing on there that are using progressive overload for the shoulders as promoting as this is the best exercise to strengthen your shoulder for volleyball. Now, obviously, there's historically been this fear of pressing and overhead pressing so as a result we still have this um this fear of loading athletes in those positions which it shouldn't be anymore we know better than that but a lot of what we're seeing for these these best exercises is low level rehab and it, we they never actually take the athlete beyond that low level rehab and i think bridging that gap is something that's super important like I, I'm not sure I've ever seen a video out there where um, an athlete is being overloaded in their cuff with banded external rotations, right? They just do external rotations till the cows come home and maybe they get a little heavier. Maybe they go up one band, but they're not actually overloading that muscle in a way that would get them to more of a performance environment, right? So maybe we're eccentrically loading that. We're causing an eccentric overload with something like, you know, um, like a band external rotation walkouts, band external rotation walkouts in different positions because we need to create uh, more of a demand once we get beyond that rehab uh, phase and as we start to move towards performance because as we get out on the court, the demands are going to be way higher than that band. So th that's what I'm trying to do with all of you know the exercise scenarios i'm creating is 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 a, a mix between taking you from that rehab side of things to the performance side of things and i think if we can connect that all together things would be a lot simpler but that's really difficult to kind of um explain or come across when the attention span of, of instagram and tiktok is like you know 12 seconds right cool. How do you, yeah I mean, that's what I use it for, right? Anything I make that's a minute, I'm like, well, I like this, but this is important. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's really important and worth uh, worth diving into even more. That idea of bridging rehab with, we call it performance, but it's more just like physical prep. It's almost yeah. like this GPP mixed with SPP. But um so in, in an example, somebody might have shoulder pain and they have pain overhead pressing, just random example. And they're thinking, okay, I need to do these. Maybe the only thing they can do to load the cuff is external rotations, just random example. And they're like, oh yeah, I know this exercise. This is a rehab exercise. And they start to feel better. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, my rehab is done. I'm going to go play volleyball. Because that's usually what happens, right? And then they get really surprised when uh, the demands of volleyball are way more than their shoulders are actually ready for. And just like Sam's saying, there's probably like eight different steps in between that banded external rotation and a full capacity arm swing. And we need to redefine what we think of as rehab versus just playing. 
Well, yeah. And I think the other thing too, is when we look at, so, you know, a very common complaint that I get in the clinic is people have shoulder pain on contact. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super common. Um, so yes. Okay. If they're so acute that their shoulder is really, really having a difficult time, we might get them in uh, a different position in order to load the cuff. Right. So now they're painful overhead. Okay. Well, let's get them in neutral and let's start to build a base down there. And that's not purely from um, like um, a mechanical, you know, muscle strength perspective, we're also doing that because maybe the person has an associated fear with activating their shoulder. So maybe now we can activate in a non-painful way at a lower level to kind of break this association between using my rotator cuff and having pain. But that's at the worst example. The goal is always to bring someone down to the level of their like highest capable performance There may be some discomfort. I typically operate at a three out of 10 or less pain. We know with some studies with hamstrings, for example, that if we operate up to three out of 10 (laughs) outcomes, because people are better able to appreciate that pain might not be causing damage, which is not always the case. So we want to bring you down to the highest possible level of, of rehab that we can do. And then we want to build you up from there. So we're looking at someone overhead contact and they're not like, need to go down to banded external rotation. So now we ask ourselves, okay, well, I think the first thing we always assume, especially as strength coaches, is it's actually a weakness. Well, it might not be a weakness. It might be an issue with them having difficulty getting upward rotation of their scapula. Okay, so if we, you know, work on some serratus things, we get more upward rotation of the scapula, then maybe they feel like they're in a better position contacting the ball. They're reaching better, their their scapula is sliding better around their rib cage. That's one factor. The second factor might be, you know, a technique uh, analysis that we need to look at because uh, unfortunately a lot of youth athletes, they're hitting the ball directly above their head. Well, if I hit the ball straight above my head and looked back, that end range position is going to be challenging for anyone. Okay. That's going to be challenging for me with a, you know, a healthy shoulder. Then we have to look at other things which people don't want to look at at all. And maybe as my biggest criticism of, you know, the youth volleyball system right now is something like volume. Okay, your shoulder just started hurting. You know, you uh, you played an OVA. You guys went down to the States to play a tournament the next weekend. And then you did uh, on the weekend, you didn't have a tournament. Your club decided they were going to do an inter, uh, you know, an inter-club uh, scrimmage series. Okay, that's all great, but you got to realize you now upped your volume by X amount and that can be causing your shoulder pain. So if all we have to do is reduce your volume, introduce some rotator cuff exercises that might break the pain cycle, we might be able to get you back very quickly. But it's really about establishing where the athlete is in kind of their, let's call it their pain journey, and then trying to match them with the appropriate highest level exercises that they can tolerate to, to get them back. And we're done. That's everything. <laughs> that was great. No, that's, that's fantastic. I like, I love the idea of introducing just enough to break that pain cycle. Cause especially with the adult population, um, there's often so much fear when it comes to shoulder, knee, low back, all low of these back. things. Yeah. Massive. Right. I think low back is, is easier for people to contextualize that fear avoidance behavior. You know, it hurts and you don't move and you don't want to move. And by not moving, 
you may hurt yourself in the future by actually moving. So it's not a guarantee, but we know that, you know, pain doesn't always equal damage. And I think when you can explain that to patients, I mean, especially when it comes to the shoulder, unfortunately, the the term impingement continues to remain and people understand that impingement is like potentially the closing down of, of the acromion on the supraspinatus tendon as it rolls over the head of the humerus. Well, when you tell someone that, you know, they're physiologically impinging, they associate pain with damage every single time, right? So that's very difficult to break. And that's why we have to kind of change the term impingement, which is already in motion and it has been for a while, but pain does not always equal dysfunction or, or uh, mechanical damage, especially when it comes to, to low back pain. Pain is, a, is like a fire alarm and it's actually advantageous for that fire alarm to go off more often than it is to not go off. So what it's doing is it's detecting like a little bit of smoke and the fire alarm goes off. But we all know there's plenty of times where, you know, we are cooking macaroni and cheese and uh, we let it go a little bit too long. And then the fire alarm goes off in our house and we're like, what the fuck? I'm just cooking cheese. I'm not. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like steak. Mac and cheese is a very fun analogy. I like the mac and cheese analogy, but I'm kind of concerned about your mac and cheese now. My, my body was was in through university built by <laughs> We had what was called fusion, and it's what we considered a high-performance meal. It was a mm -hmm. box of white craft uh, dinner, um, but the shell noodles, not the macaroni noodles. And then you put a tuna, cayenne pepper, and Frank's Red Hot. And I probably ate that for dinner like three times a week for three years. A Annie's is our new discovery. Annie's like craft dinner equivalent right now. It's slightly healthier, so you feel less a little terrible at yourself. But Ayla smashes Annie. Like it's her job. It's like oh, my it's go bad dinner. So good. You can get a Costco. Anyways. See, you started talking food and I get distracted. Talk about squirrel TikTok mentality. Um, all fantastic, obviously. I want to take a minute and almost we're gonna regress our exercise prescription right now, just a, as a perfect example. No, um, we're throwing out all these words. We haven't defined any of them for those of you that are unfamiliar with shoulder anatomy. So Let's take 33 seconds and really simply talk about uh, T-spine, shoulder, humerus. Yeah, so, so essentially the shoulder is going to be like, it's the most mobile joint in the body, right? So we have our scapula, which is our shoulder blade. It's going to sit on our rib cage and it flows around our rib cage depending on where our arm is in space. So the scapula articulating or moving on our thoracic spine, that's really, it, it's, it is part of the, you know, the shoulder complex, but we traditionally define the shoulder joint as the articulation between the, you know, the scap, the glenoid, and the head of the humerus, which is your long bone in your arm. Um, but that being said, we also have, uh, you know, our AC joint, our chromioclavicular joint. And that's really what is the only bony attachment keeping our shoulder to our skeleton. Because at the back, we just have our, our shoulder blades sitting on top of muscles attached to our thoracic spine all the way down to our lumbar and up to our cervical spine. So it's, there's, a, there's a lot going on back there, but when it comes to like direct attachments to the skeleton, it's our AC joint. So, you know, when we're looking at shoulder health, we're not just looking at the rotator cuff. We're also looking at the articulation between the scap and the thoracic spine. 
You know, we're looking at the articulation between the scap and the acromion, as well as the humerus to the scapula. So we need to take that all into consideration. And then to make it even more complicated, when we're dealing with shoulder pathologies, we probably are also looking at something going on in the neck or there will involve some form of treatment at the neck as well. So it ends up being, a, a, you know, a comprehensive shoulder plan is going to be more than just doing rotations at 90-90. We have a lot going on. So that's why it's really about identifying, you know, where the possible breakdown could be happening um, because it could be happening in a lot more places than just the rotator cuff. And this is, well, this comes harkens back to our conversation before around the three best exercises for shoulder health. It's like, yeah, okay. In that context, good luck, basically. And what what we talked about in this podcast before with Sam and some other people, Jared comes to mind specifically is everyone moves different. And that's a really hard thing to get your mind around because uh, as Sam briefly talked about there, your shoulder blade sits on your rib cage and it elevates, it depresses, it um, retracts, it protracts, it rotates, it tilts, it glides. It does all these things. And we have this theoretical model of how much each of those things should happen as you go overhead. But it depends on the person too. And we also can't confidently say what it's doing and whether it's like normal or not, right? That's what makes it even harder to say like, oh, their scapula is is depressed or elevated. It can be extremely obvious in extreme cases, but most people to like the naked eye, you compare two clinicians, we're not exceptional at actually confirming that that is the case, right? So a lot of it is trial and error and figuring out multiple areas of influence in order to better assist someone. Like we also used to look at scapular positioning <laughs> crazy and trying to determine if that was a precursor for, you know, poor shoulder health, right? Scapular dyskinesis or scapular winging. Um, we also know that scapular winging now is not predictive of, of dysfunction. And um, I think I did like a review of this on my Instagram. Most likely the cause is actually uh, overload. Okay. So it's not that they're, they're they have a winged scapula, it's that the winged scapula and they actually did too much, too much volume. So it really is, um, a puzzle for each individual athlete or each individual client to try and figure out exactly um, what we need to do in order to get them back to where they want to be. But I mean, again, a long-winded way of saying that the shoulder is super complicated. It doesn't really follow necessarily like a clearly defined set of rules and our understanding of it and application and how to treat it is varying and evolving over time at I would say right now, probably the fastest rate ever, whether it be because COVID got a lot of people interested in um, training and physical fitness, whether it be because literature is being adopted way faster in practice now than it previously was, or more people are involved in it. So it's being pumped out quicker, but we're in an environment right now where one, we like to question everything, but it's also incredibly popular to throw out large defined statements um, in order to gain traction on accounts or, or social media platforms. Right. So it's, it's really challenging. And I mean, this is the second time we've, we've kind of chatted and I hope your listeners are starting to appreciate that, you know, even myself as someone who's involved in this industry, it's very difficult to navigate and give the best 
sound information without you as you know the receiver of the information being like well this isn't really that specific or you're looking for a clearly defined set of rules where it doesn't exist so i mean that's my challenge every day is to talk to people in the clinic about shoulder pain and kind of tell them it depends and like is this exercise they're doing hurting them well it depends we'll 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 try and figure that out but i can't say for certain whether or not it is or is not just right now yeah and this comes back to the the recurring theme of this podcast is certainty is the devil where if if you find somebody that's really certain they know exactly what you need like be wary well and i like what you just said there be wary anytime i'm working with an athlete or i'm in clinic and i'm like that's it i got it like it all came together right now i question myself okay mm-hmm. i never question myself when i'm looking at a program or an individual and i'm like i have no i don't know where to start usually mm-hmm. that means i have so much information that i need to kind of create the hierarchy and start to go through it but if i'm like not nah, got it like let's get to work that's where kind of the red light goes on for me. And I'm like, you need to start questioning your hypothesis as you start to work. And that's going to result in better clinical outcomes than just being like, boom, they fit in this box and we're going to do these things. Yeah. So to give the the listeners just something to contextualize this into, let's say uh, you're having shoulder pain and you go on TikTok, Instagram, whatever, and you're not following us because, I mean, what are you doing? Um, But you find a post that says, do you have shoulder pain and you're an overhead athlete? Well, you probably have scapular dyskinesis and you need to upwardly rotate your scapula more and it will solve your pain. Here are three exercises to upwardly upwardly rotate your scapula more. They might help and they might make it worse and they might do nothing. And you might be stuck doing these exercises because you're convinced that they're the one thing that you need, when in reality, it could be something entirely different that gives you relief or help or builds tolerance or whatever it is. So that's that's the context and what we're trying to encapsulate here, if I've got yeah. that right. And what, like to make it even more obvious, okay, so say someone has been identified that they have scapular dyskinesis and they have shoulder pain and someone's saying, boom, your shoulder pain is because you have scapular dyskinesis, okay? So we're going to do, in theory, that makes complete sense. We're going to do serratus exercises. They're going to help upwardly facilitate rotation, but it's also going to keep that medial border of the scapula down a little bit, okay? Or we can do some lower fibers of trap exercises. That all makes sense. That's great sound clinical reasoning but we could also just get that athlete to shoulder press if they were comfortable and we could have the exact same outcome we don't know why but that's when it comes to the specificity of exercise there is no one exercise one had sound reasoning to try and fix the dysfunction we identified that might result in the athlete being pain-free the other is completely counterintuitive they might still press with their shoulder blade winged off their body and they might get pain-free from that one we don't we don't know what is the best exercise, but we know that exercise is better than not exercising. So that's why we come in and we say, let's try and find exercises that we can, that you can tolerate and that we can overload. And I think that that's one of the challenges. We find exercises people can tolerate, but we're missing that gap between overloading and getting them back to performance. And then when you kind of talked about it there, like try these three exercises for scapular dyskinesis or to fix scapular dyskinesis. For me, I'm not necessarily looking to fix the winging scapula because we know that that's not correlated necessarily with painful outcomes. 
What I'm saying is, okay, well, if you want to improve serratus activation, you could try these three exercises. So I'm not saying anything about fixing your winged scapula, but I'm more talking about, okay, well, what if we can get your shoulder into more of an upwardly rotated position, which is what we require for volleyball. So I'm always under the impression or, or suggesting like, hey, you could try these different things that could help out here, but it might not. Okay, but I'm never going to say like, do this because this will happen. And I think those black and white statements are, are what get people in trouble. And I'm hesitant to make. 100%. Yeah, I love that and agree with every single thing. And my job in these conversations is to bring it as real world as I can. So I give these little analogies and hopefully it helps for listeners at home. Um, really practical example here. So I've worked with a couple of different coaches historically that either weren't exposed to this kind of train of thought or uh, learned from different people that were more kind of old school structural style. And it was something to the effect of most people should not do overhead press because their scapula do not move enough and they're going to get impingement and that's going to cause more injury because we're uh, tearing up your rotator cuff as you go overhead because it's being impinged on the bone. This is something I want to kind of grit our teeth into a little bit. Um, but these are the kind of conversations that happen in real world outside of these new aged evidence-based, uh, self-proclaimed, uh, environments that we try to stick ourselves in. Um, and I mean, in a good way, obviously, um, so I want to, I want to just dive into that just a little bit more on why that might not necessarily be correct, and what are the implications of following these very mechanical models that are very me uh, mechanics equal pain models. Yeah, so I think um, there's a couple things to unpack there. Where's One. That? Even as I was joining the national team in like 2010, there was still an avoidance to overhead pressing. Okay. And I came from like a meathead background. So I was overhead pressing like it was my job. Okay. Because, you know, barbell military press was like a standard exercise. If you were going to yeah. squat bench and you were going to overhead press. Like when I stopped playing at, Queens. So when I started at Queens, my one rep max bench was 95 pounds. And then in my fifth year, it was 235 for three. And like, whatever, the numbers aren't astronomically high or even really that high for most people. But all I'm trying to illustrate is that I could bench press no problem and still be a professional volleyball player. Bench pressing in Europe is extremely common. When we look at volleyball players here, almost nobody benches because there's this fear of of injury. Now, bench should be very minimal, but it can be an important exercise to develop, you know, horizontal pressing strength. But the same thing goes with, you know, overhead pressing. A lot of what I see is athletes getting to something like a half kneel bottoms up kettlebell press, which is a fine exercise. There's nothing wrong with this exercise, but we need to be progressed beyond that. I use that exercise with my athletes 
Eventually, they'll move into a dumbbell. Then they'll move into a, a, a more stable position. And now we'll start to work on more aggressive overhead strengthening. You know, for example, the landmine press is very popular in volleyball because it's not a true overhead press. It's also a horizontal press. I would still want somebody doing something in the pure vertical plane, okay? So whether it be a single arm seated uh, shoulder press, whether it just be a bilateral shoulder press, a, an Arnold press, all of these are, are great exercises, but we need we need some overhead pressing. And when we bring it back to this concept of, you know, coaches previously thought that, you know, impingement was uh, something that was happening to everyone with shoulder pain and people who didn't have shoulder pain didn't have impingement. So if you have pain, we should definitely not overhead press because you have impingement. We know that that's not the case, okay? Somebody can have that space closed down. Um, and so that's what the impingement is, is a closing down of that space. Someone can have that and they experience pain. Someone can have that and they don't experience pain. So it's not necessarily just the closing down of that location that causes pain and dysfunction. There's a, a million other things, okay? The tendon could just be aggravated from overload. Our volume is, is too high. Um, you know, maybe they're locking their scapula down and back when they're attacking. One of the things we've kind of come into vogue are not really in vogue, but yeah, maybe the second part has, but this first part is an analogy I know you'll also appreciate growing up strength training of locking your shoulders down and back. Lock them back while you row. You don't let those shoulder blades move at all. Well, that translates into people when they go to attack a volleyball. Now their shoulder blade has to rotate like crazy. You've told them in the gym that they got to lock that shoulder blade down. Well, we got to know mechanically then we could be putting our athletes in a, a compromised position. Another thing I'm starting to see more is this concept of contracting your rhomboids in order to help with shoulder hip separation. But what happens sometimes then is the athlete mm -hmm. has difficulty actually lengthening their rhomboids to let the shoulder blade go. And then they end up attacking in this like contracted position. So, you know, my word of advice to, you know, trying to bring this back to kind of, the listeners is one overhead pressing is safe Two, you, you could be having impingement. You could not be having impingement, but we know it doesn't really matter. And, and three, we should be finding an overhead pressing variation that you're comfortable with, you're confident with, and we can overload what modality we use for that does not matter. I do not fucking care. Okay. So I am not the coach who's like dumbbells, kettlebells only, or like, if you're not pressing with a barbell, then you're doing something wrong. It's like, I, I don't care. Or like never use machines. Machines aren't functional for athletes. It's like, if yeah. you have use, something is going wrong because somebody with acute pain might not be able to overhead press a, a kettlebell or a dumbbell or military press for that example, because it's a fixed arm path. They may do really well with a fixed arm path on a, just a seated shoulder press machine at good life. Okay. We start there. We start bilateral to offload the affected shoulder. Then we can maybe move to unilateral. Then we can maybe move to some more unstable patterns. And once you feel confident in it with these unstable patterns, now we probably can start to load more aggressively. And that's the way, if, if there's advice I have for your listeners, it's what we talked about right off the bat. We want to find the highest level regression we can keep you at and then build off of that. There's no reason you got to go right down to the basics unless 
you know, you're really acutely, acutely injured, in which case there's value in doing those low, low level stuff. But we want to kind of get you into these positions up here quickly, because if you do rehab only down below, guaranteed, you might be pain free. But the first time you go hit a volleyball, that's where you might run into trouble. Love it. Yes. Stamp it. Yes. Time marked that. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, go, I wanted I made a mental note uh, to mention this. That's one of the things I've been changing the last last couple of years, especially is when I'm doing rows or uh, presses or whatever it is, is accentuating shoulder motion when I can. So, like when you're doing when we do like face pulls, for example, it's big retraction, some external rotation, all that stuff, and then when you go to reach, like let your shoulder be pulled intentionally. So you can yeah. get strong at all these different ranges because you, you're going to be there. So you might as well be strong. So again, I've like tried to really mature as a strength coach over the last three years and like put a lot of effort in the last year. And I'm, I'm trying to pull from all different domains, like not just sport performance. I'm trying to view all the edges of the spectrum <laughs> and the obvious one. And it's, you know, been, hammered home over the last two years is like 90 degrees versus full range. Okay. <laughs> we're looking at what you're talking about right there is we're actually pulling principles from hypertrophy work yeah. in order to better us at volleyball. So, okay. Again, my training is kind of, I call it power volleyball. It's a mix of this sport performance, like that, like aesthetics as well. And the reason I love it is because just like you talked about, okay, so I'll use, um, I, you know, I'll use the JPJ single arm. I don't know if he was the originator of this and it's probably, you know, bad form saying that he even created this exercise. Someone obviously did long before him, but this is what all the kids know is this single arm lat pull down. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, yes. He's talking about that because it's optimal for whatever the pull on the iliac lats. Okay, great. But the reason I'm, you know, using an exercise like that is to help facilitate the athlete controlling end range upward rotation and then figuring out how to actually use the lats to pull it down. So if we pull from that from my hypertrophy, we want this end range work maximal muscle length and then creating a contraction from there but we can also use that for volleyball to establish stability in end range positions and get the benefit of that hypertrophy work too so you know there's lots of value in doing plyos and super fast things but when it comes to some of these supplementary it's nice to pull from whether it be just like pure strength facets whether it be from hypertrophy facets um, or other areas within strength and conditioning. But when they're all combined together in an intelligent way, it, it makes a, a big difference. Like you talked about face pulls. Okay, well, now we're really lengthening out our rear delts. Now we're lengthening out our rhomboids, and then we're going to cause them to contract. Difficult to get those muscles to like really develop and create size in them, but we can use it from a strength perspective, right? We use lower reps, a little bit heavier. But do you ever see people doing face pulls for eight? Or is everyone doing face pulls for like 12 to 15 with lightweight, right? They're just banging them out and they're probably yeah. hanging out in the shortened range or have tension on the lengthened range. So that's kind of the difference is, okay, we can bang out face pulls, but how do we make face pulls a better exercise for somebody who's not just uh, kind of going through the motions when it comes to shoulder health? Because that's what people do. They say right. they have a shoulder health routine. But it's it's not. They're just moving their arms. They're not necessarily it's a mobility routine, if anything, at its best. Change. Yeah. No, for sure.
And I even like pulling from calisthenics. Sometimes I'll, I'll do that. So people talk about the benefits of doing like just a dead hang. And I like it. Great. Problem is that it has, it has physical limitations for a lot of people, right? Like I can't hold a dead hang for a very long period to the point where I actually kind of need it for my shoulder because my grip becomes limiting and all these other things become limiting. I don't need a spectacular world-class grip to be a volleyball athlete, but being strong in that position for my shoulder is great. So what we'll do is we'll do like a supinated grip lat pull down with a really accentuated reach where I get the ab contraction and I just let my thoracic spine uh, extend and I let my shoulder um, get pulled away, get that, um, that elevation and that rotation. It's just, it's lovely. So you pull the principle from what you, you pull the result of the principle from what you want and then just regress it to the point where it's useful for your athlete. Yeah. And I think exercises like that, like body weight exercises, calisthenics, it's really tough, right? Because you're either hanging your whole body weight or you're not right. So even, okay, say you were fixated on hanging, being what's going to fix your shoulder. And there are people who uh, have that mentality. There's a volleyball group. Uh, there's two groups. There's one in Canada, one in the States who, who are really big fans of hanging. And you know what? Great. I love it. If, if you believe that hanging is what's going to solve shoulders, then, then get after it. Because we know that, again, there's no one exercise. Um, but we need to create an environment where the people are challenged but can be successful. So if they can't single arm hang, because, again, we're going to get this, like, thoracic opening on that side. So to dead hang with both, if, you know, eventually to be volleyball specific, maybe we want to dead hang with yeah. one hand. Because we're actually further. Well, if they can't tolerate that, then we have to create an environment where there's a regression. And, you know, you identified one with that single arm lap pull down. The next one, though, above that, like, again, you might not be able to pull heavy enough for it to be like you're full on hanging and you're not in that full overhead position. You know, then you can translate that into like just a straight single arm pull down there. And then you can progress that into a reduced weight hang, right? Your feet are on the ground. You just bend your knees and you hang with as much weight as you can for time and then you try and take more and more weight off of your feet but that's kind of you know as a therapist something i'm dealing with every day because i'm trying to titrate you up the chain of function but sometimes that you know we're only moving you know a millimeter each time further forward so i got to figure out a variation that maybe can overload you just a little bit like what is the next progression that's only slightly different but you can still tolerate it. And I think that that's given me like a, a really unique perspective on how to load some of my athletes because they might have an exercise in their program and they play a tournament and they're like, Hey, this, my shoulders jacked up. This high level exercise isn't working. And instead of me saying like, Oh, you got to shut it down or just go to your rotations. We just go one level down the hierarchy, see if we can tolerate that. And if we can, that's where we start. If not, we go down a little bit further. Following up on that. Um, and this is more for my own curiosity because I'm very selfish on these podcasts. Um, how often would you say that you regress an exercise versus back off the weight of an exercise? So for example, if that single arm lat pull down is in somebody's program, I'm like, hey, shoulders jacked up, uh, the weight, which I was doing, say it was 50 pounds for that single arm lat pull down last week, it hurts. Should I go down to 30 or should I regress to a different exercise? So again, um, we're determining load intolerance or positional intolerance. So you mm. might drop the weight and they still feel like it sucks up there. Okay. Mm. So now if you've got to drop the weight significantly. We have to ask ourselves what the goal of the session is. Okay. So if we're doing a single arm lap pull down and the 
goal is that we're looking for, you know, some type of pulling activity. Um, uh, obviously, in this case, we're going from overhead down. So arguably, we're trying to hit some of the lower fibers of our lats. If it's a positional intolerance, okay, well, maybe we just drop the stack height down lower. So now you're in less flexion of the arm um, and assess if we can tolerate there. Like if the goal is strength for the lats, if we have to drop that uh, weight down so much, we might not be able to get into that same, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, the, stim the stimulus we're trying to impose by the exercise. So I look at it like that. Yeah, first, let's see if we can reduce. If they're like, oh, it started hurting at 10. Okay, well, then we can just reduce the reps, maybe. Mm -hmm. We could reduce the number of sets if it's not till after. So I think the variables to be manipulated again, same answer as everything, is like it depends on the athlete. Your, your logic is totally sound will drop the weight but then i think the logic of well we can manipulate the exercise or the sets or the volume these are all things that we can do as well understanding that the goal of whatever the exercise still remains the goal right if you can't back squat but the goal was uh glute ham development if we take a little bit of weight off and you still can't back squat well what if we use uh, a hip thrust or something right what if we uh, use some, uh, put you on a machine and have you single leg leg press or something. So there's a million ways to get it done. We just got to find what makes the most sense based on the goal we've identified. Yeah. And I think what we talked about before, um, pays credence to this a lot in a really good way, because the idea that it's not one specific exercise or even one specific movement pattern that we need to nail every session is freeing in the sense of, okay, well, this hurts. Let me just swap it out um and try something different within the relatively same movement pattern like still pulling yeah uh, in this case but it doesn't have to be a strict full uh overhead reach pull yeah exactly the movement you know obviously with the strength and conditioning program there's value in repeating the same thing over time which gets boring for people but people who do have the most success but there's going to be days where you know maybe you played in your thursday night league and you go to back squat on Friday, which you back squatted every Friday for five Fridays. And now you get to the sixth Friday and you're like, Jesus, I am pushing like a fraction of what I was before. And I'm just, I'm not meeting the goal of the session. Like this is no longer, you know, uh, stimulating my quads at a, a level that's pushing me forward in my program. Then we can switch the modality. Right. But then the next week you might be right back to back squatting. Um, yeah. And I, that that's one that's an important kind of uh, revelation I had post career um, was I often didn't do that I would be like fuck it I got to beat the number on the page from last week and yeah it's a little uncomfortable but I I can get through it and I think I probably made that decision a few too many times incorrectly which kind of bit me in the ass um, but I think athletes now are doing a little bit better of a job, but that's where we need to understand from a, a coaching perspective in a formalized session, not necessarily, you know, someone who's just playing on Thursday nights, but if we look at the club kids that you're coaching, the club kids I work with, that's where a coach needs to make some informed decision-making based on the feedback the athletes giving them. If they're saying, Hey, I was doing my workouts this week and I noticed like I'm, my numbers are really decreasing. I'm, I'm not sleeping as well, coach. I've got uh, a couple tests coming up. Like that's where the coach has to say, like, 
Hey Jordan, you know what? This week on Thursday, we're uh, we're gonna cut out jump serving for you. Okay, you're gonna stay on the ground for jump serving, and uh, you know what? We're gonna limit your jumps to 50 per practice. You've been doing 100 jumps per practice for the last week, so let's keep you at 50 today because it looks like you're starting to get. I use the word overcooked. It looks like you're getting overcooked. We don't want you to burn, which is where you get injured, right? So you know if we can recognize where that athlete's overheating or overcooking that coach can make better decision-making, but coaches don't do that. They just <laughs> let you play more and more and more and more and more. And then provincials come and everyone gets broken. And then nationals is the most important. So everyone plays nationals broken and then they go straight into beach. And it's, it's great that the kids are this active, but our coaches need to have more of a role in our long-term athlete health plan um than they currently do and that's that's really tough to ask like a parent to, yeah. to do that like really hard yeah parent that's not getting paid for the most part <laughs> we ask a lot for our free uh, volunteers but you're right i totally agree obviously yeah and i mean it's something that you deal with all the time you know with athletes who come in and work with you but also work with teams or other other trainers or tech like because now we're in an environment where we have athletes who I mean, I don't even know if they recognize it, but like their integrated sports team, like athletes who are playing 18U now essentially are having the services that I had as like on the national team. They have a physio they're working with. They have a private coach they're working with. They have their club coach they're working with. Sometimes then they even have uh, like mental performance coaches and then they have their parents and then they've hired someone to do recruiting for them. So they have like, they're being pulled in so many different directions and they don't even know like the volume that they're undertaking and that they're doing too much because they just think that that's what the standard is. And I think a conversation in like youth sports from this injury prevention lens or like this, you know, shoulder problem lens, it's maybe one of the most prevalent other than, you know, jumper's knee and volleyball is that, you know, if we really want to combat shoulder pain, one facet is, you know, strength and conditioning, one facet may be physiotherapy, but another facet has to come from the coach themselves, right? They have a huge influence on that athlete and the amount of volume they're undertaking and um, what they're doing in training. And if, if they can start to understand that that's a variable to be manipulated in order to maintain the athlete's health, then we're all closer to being on the same page we're all part of the same big quilt i love the that that overcooked or sorry that would say the the overcooked versus burnt analogy yeah oh that's good because it's really hard to come back from burn you can Every, you can you can back off the overcook yeah everyone all my patients in the clinic look at me weird when i say that like no nah, i don't want to overcook you and they're like what are you talking about and i'm like i just i, I don't want to burn you out like we're good <laughs> You don't need to go any any further. Yeah. Uh, I think plyos is one of those great examples of like, you know, you got to be aware of when you're starting to overcook someone, right? It mm -hmm. might not be apparent in that session, you know, later that day, but, you know, three, four weeks down the road, like you got to recognize real quick when that turkey is getting close. Because if you don't, like the whole kitchen's going to be on fire and then Thanksgiving's ruined. That, that might be my best analogy of all time. Thanksgiving. That was, that was um, really good. That was solid. I'm going to bring like a, a Bluetooth meat uh, thermometer with me to practice now just to carry around. I'm just going to poke people with it. What are you doing? Just making sure you're not overcooked.
a fire alarm, right? You bring one. So it's like, I can, I can smell smoke and you turn it on. <laughs> Imagine that in a practice. Like oh you, my God. You're carrying around a little CO2 monitor that just Oof. be awful. So many dangerous options. I love it. Um, that was fantastic. Okay. I want to touch on, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on this one thing. I know we're, we're kind of regressing back into the, the training details again after talking about our turkeys, but um, I think it's worth touching on. And that is uh, this conversation around, it's two parts, but uh, similar, uh, imbalances and push-to-pull ratios. So maybe we can touch on the the mechanical idea behind this and what we used to think it was, and uh, maybe some reasons why that may not be as true as we once thought. Got it. Yeah. So both made up things. Uh, <laughs> no. We're in fairly, fairy tale land. So I'm even going to like contextualize this before I answer. This yep. was like, I mean, we're buds, like great dude over here in Kingston, but for sure out of all the podcasts I've done, this was the one I was most intimidated to do out of any podcast I've ever done. I'm intimidating. Let's go. That's the first time I've ever heard that in my life. I just he's, upgraded. He's going to ask me a bunch of super specific questions <laughs> about the shoulder. Fuck it up. And like, then <laughs> it's going to listen to this and he's going to take what I'm saying as like the gospel and he's going to oh, run. Yeah. I'm going to create sure. old dysfunctional pattern in the OVA because I said something on a podcast. Oh yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put it on IG and I'm going to promote, promote it with like the hashtags of everyone's going to see it. Uh, hashtag. Why is Sam so wrong? Hashtag shoulder dyskinesis. And I'm going to get, you're going to get so many DMS. It's going to be great. Yeah, so I'm trying to do a better job in my life of, of just projecting positive information <laughs> into the world. Uh, I never was someone to call someone out on Instagram with videos or anything, but I'm trying to uh, continue and build off of that. So, like, for example, the supraspinatus impingement, you know, again, a term that's kind of stuck around for a long time. My quest is to, you know, help eliminate that by just educating, right? Not necessarily being confrontational with anyone. So when it comes to imbalances, again, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons that somebody's going to tell you that your imbalances are causing injury. And a lot of that's financial because you can spend a lot of time with a trainer trying to even out your leg strength and it could have zero implication whatsoever on performance or injury prevention. Um, so, you know, we've looked at imbalances and when it comes to the shoulder, again, I wish I was one of those guys who could just knock out references for you on research papers right now and be like, Hedlow at all 2017 said that this. You could okay? say that and just make it up and no one would actually look it up other than like the one or two people that are nerds that know it anyways. So you can probably make it up realistically. Nerds is gonna. No offense, I'm also a nerd. They're uh, they're gonna look that up, and then I'm gonna end up on TikTok again, like under the, the Joey of like shoulder pain, talking about how I'm you know ruining the industry. But so the paper that I reviewed, again, this all needs to be taken with a grain of salt because anything that is researched in volleyball is extremely small population sample size. So maybe it provides us with some information, but we can't take it as like uh, you know the word of God. So eccentric strength, um, like eccentric external rotation strength was the only um, muscular or positional imbalance that was predictive of injury. Um, 
The other one was scapular winging coupled with an acute overload of volume. So those are my understanding of what is predictive of shoulder pain in volleyball. Otherwise, we can't. Now to say what I'm understanding from you is we're talking about imbalances. Someone comes into the clinic and they're like, oh, your right shoulder is higher than your left shoulder. Like we should, you know, we should work on this, that, and the other to create this idealistic posture. Well, we know that, sure, maybe you can do that, but it's probably a waste of your time. It probably doesn't have an influence on injury rates and we're not naturally balanced anyway. Like we play a unilateral sport. The only time our legs are operating equal is typically when we're block jumping and the purists would argue that we're still not equal in that situation. But you think of an approach while well, you have a plant leg that's going to it's going to load from like a, a very straight position. You have another leg that's going to load in more of a bent position, but the forces between them are, are not going to be equal. You know, when we attack, we're rotating different directions. Our shoulder blades are doing different things. Our neck is doing different things. So. I want to work unilaterally while I'm training in order to help develop the individual muscles or create unstable patterns. But my primary goal is not to even you out. Okay. So for example, if I can do a little bit more on my right leg, I might do a little bit more on my right leg than my left leg. My goal is not to say like, Oh, your right leg is strong enough. We just need to get your left leg up to that right leg. So I think we've kind of, posture was something that was super um, forefront in the media and with physios for a long time. And I mean, I have very rarely commented on someone's posture unless there are very obvious abnormalities. So for example, like I have a depressed right scapula because I have a separation of my AC joint from playing volleyball. So I know I need to use my traps a little bit more on my right side because that just makes my shoulder feel better. I'm not using my traps more on my right side to change the resting position of my shoulder. Okay. But again, say you have like no right leg strength because you have pain, then I'm not trying to fix your imbalance. I'm trying to fix your pain, which then you'll be allowed to express strength. So yeah, I haven't had very many patients uh, in the clinic or athletes where I'm like, you're really imbalanced and we need to, to fix this. And that's the key to you being the best is to fix this imbalance. It's something to work on, but I don't think we're investing as much time and energy into it as we previously were. And again, it's still prevalent in the industry because to be honest, you're probably never going to be equal, which means you'll train with someone forever and pay them and you never achieve the goal. But it takes you a long time to, to realize that. So obviously we went on a Sam tangent and he forgot what the second part was completely. <laughs> well, about. first of all, I have to, I have to roast tangent off your Sam tangent. Um, I think we can absolutely be even left, right. All you need to do is remove your liver put it in the middle, uh, move up your kidneys and move one down, um, make it so your intestines shift one way, not the other. And like, you know, it's part of your lung off and then put your yeah. heart middle, right? Right. My, right. Throughout the heart. Yeah. That's what surgeons are doing. My dad had open heart surgery in the summer and they just, they put it back in the middle to fix his imbalance and he was good to go. Right? <laughs> oh, and you need to be ambidextrous, obviously. Amazing. Cause my dad listens to everything that I do. So he's going to be the one guy that oh, listens. Oh, yes going to call me tonight and, and talk about how on a podcast I talked about an orthopedic surgeon fixing his uh his imbalance by centering his heart spectacular 
spectacular um part two was well the, the general part two is push pull ratios the the overarching theme is being balanced front to back Got it. And this so, is more of an interesting topic i think yeah so i mean you ask meathead sam from like before he went to physio school he was getting into it it was like two to one push pull ratio guaranteed always pull twice as much as you pull or sorry yeah yeah pull twice as much as you push and um that for sure is bro science. I don't think there's any, uh, there's any academic merit to it. Not that everything has to have academic merit. Like, again, I'm pulling from both sides. There's like the evidence-based pros who would never do anything that is not researched. And then there's the guys who just make stuff up. I'm somewhere in the middle, try not to make stuff up, but you can be a creative in your, in your clinical reasoning, but we also have things that are like no-nos. Yeah, you can say and, something feels good when you can say something typically feels good when you do this for some people without saying this is the way you have to do it. Yeah, it's like saying there's no value in manual therapy. There is some value in manual therapy. You just have to find the right person and understand why you're doing it. Sure. So push ratio, again, a made up thing. The idea was that, okay, if you're pushing too much, you're going to end up with this internally rotated shoulder, this forwardly tilted scapula that's going to put us in a position that's very difficult to get overhead or more challenging okay it, it has sound reasoning but not everyone who pushes ends up in this internally rotated protracted anteriorly tilted position right so i still think we should pull pulling i think is one of the most important things for shoulder health in my opinion and understanding how your shoulder blade moves around your body in that situation i 100 think we should be pressing but what i think people think when they hear push pull ratio is horizontal pressing okay i'll horizontal press for about one set uh yeah like one like group of sets per week so that's three or four total sets per week i'm also searching for range in those so what i'm doing is really trying to open myself up because i want to get what that feels like to open up with my rotation when we're setting and jousting though there is value in having some of that horizontal strength now that doesn't have to be something like bench pressing that could be something like uh you know a push-up we could use a hybrid landmine press you could do a low incline dumbbell press you could do uh but like I said, most people associate that with horizontal pressing. So they think everyone's horizontal pressing, like, I don't know, five times a week. They're not just horizontal press once a week. All vertical they do is bench every day. Partial range, bench. It's all they vertical, do. Vertical press, you know, twice a week and then row three times a week and, and you're going to be okay. They don't all have to be the same exercise. But I think this is a term that's kind of been pulled from bro science because you had guys who were benching five days a week. And they're like, no, like you're going to wreck your shoulders. You should pull more. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. But we've extrapolated this into a completely different context. And now it continues to stay. So, you know, coach the odd meathead, no problem. But from an athletic population, now we're being pulled into this where it's like, well, our athletes aren't pushing a ton anyway. So what, they're pulling only two times a week if they're only pressing once? <laughs> the ratio, sense. it's don't question the ratio, Sam. Yeah. Never so question. Like, so now starting tomorrow, all my athletes will, will bench twice a week, but they'll row four times a week. Yeah. So oh, yeah. that's that's the only way to, to build a program. For oh, example, bro. I tolerate horizontal pressing quite well. Okay, it's a great upper body exercise for me. It, I, like one for... 
for pecs, for resisting, like having something to pull off of with that arm swing, you know, um, I get a lot out of that. It, it does a lot for my anterior delts as well. And then scapular stabilizers. So I benefit a lot from horizontal pressing. So I can do it at a slightly higher frequency. Now, someone who doesn't tolerate it quite well, then we use more hybrid approaches and something like the low incline dumbbell chest press, where we're pressing in more of the scapular plane, typically athletes respond well in that. But my biggest criticism is we, especially at the youth age, is, is we are training athletes who are just starting their strength and conditioning journeys. So to say like, hey, no dumbbell chest press, we can't do that. It's, it's bad for volleyball. Well, I don't know where that came from, the bad for volleyball. But the second thing is the number of these athletes who volleyball is going to be there, they're gone. <laughs> so are we going to stop a 15-year-old male volleyball player from horizontally pressing because we're so afraid it's going to trash his shoulders and then he quits volleyball in two years and never horizontally presses for the rest of his life. Like we're instilling these principles that make no sense that these kids are at such an impressionable age that they carry on for the rest of their life. And it's not doing them service. I'll bring an analogy into this as well. Brenda Willis, I love you. Uh, I hope you're not listening to this because this is about you. Brenda. Brenda was like my volleyball mom. Okay. She's probably the biggest reason I'm any good at volleyball and uh, a huge component of my work ethic that's carried me kind of through all my success in life. And uh, Brenda's an amazing person, but coaches, volleyball coaches sometimes make dumb statements that don't make any sense. And uh, it, like those things stick with you forever. And again, wrong or right, uh, this one stuck with me forever. I was eating pineapple before a game. I was like, perfect. I'm gonna have like a fruit snack before a game. Yeah. Uh, this seems like the logical, like healthy decision. And Brenda was like, no, can't have pineapple before a game. It's too acidic. It'll, it'll fuck you up before the game. And I'm like, that, that I never, never looked into it. Okay. But I've just never eaten pineapple before. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was like, Brenda said it was too acidic. Said, I'm going to trust Brenda on this one. And uh, I mean, I wasn't so tied to pineapple that I, I, it was right. like a big thing for me to give it up. But when coaches do these things, they they stick with athletes. Thankfully, oh, yeah. pineapple was maybe the worst. But um, <laughs> no one no one really instilled any like truly controversial, of controversial opinions to me. But this, that like we're going to remove exercises because they're unsafe for athletes. There's no unsafe exercises. They're yeah. just not ready for them. Um, we're loading them too aggressively or they don't understand what's required of them. And if, if we, that's our job as a coach to make that sense. If we're just like, no, sorry, you don't do that. Then we maybe should be working harder. <laughs> that was the nicest thing. Uh, that was the, the nicest way of putting that I've ever heard. Um, no, the, the bench press thing is, um, I, I love that. And this drives me nuts because you go on Instagram. It's like volleyball players and bench press. Oh my God. Are you new? It's like, well, yeah, first of all, how many of us are going pro? I mean, come on. And second of all, well, second of all, um, bench press is fun. And like a lot of people enjoy bench press. And in a world where so few of us enjoy training, is it really going to be more harmful than it is beneficial to get people to do things that they like, even in the context of everything else? Let's just say, even though it's not that it was not ideal and it was um, 
could increase impingement, which both bullshit, but whatever. If you can get more people training, I don't really care the specifics unless we're trying to get super technical with it, but most people don't care. Um, if they get some training, awesome. I've got this group of 17 to 18 new girls that I work with. And they're the best. They've been with me for like four years and like they're my favorite. Um, I don't have favorites, but they're pretty great. Um, and whenever they're like knees are pissed off and they want to come in and they're, they've got a term at the weekend and you know, they're like, okay, this is hurting, but I can do this, yada, yada, yada. The first question they always ask is, can we bench today? And I'm like, hell yes, we can bench today because they get so fired up and they're getting so strong at it. And it's, from what I can tell, helping their game and they just love it. And if all of this thing, like this whole scenario comes out where I've got this group of girls that comes uh, and goes into play college or not, and then eventually is in either the rec leagues or the pro leagues or whatever they choose to do. And we've created this environment where these girls are just being badasses in the gym and owning bench press of all things. It's like, uh, what else do you want? Well, I think what you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and it's probably what I've come to realize the most as a coach and in integrating this physiotherapy kind of lens. And one of the things is our job is basically to create training longevity. Okay. So I want to get you interested in training. I want to get you training. And then I want to get you loving training. Within that context, I need to sneak in the performance goals that you've identified or the rehab goals, but those are almost secondary to the get you training, keep you training, get you to love training. Because if we can do that, the rest kind of takes care of itself. If you have an athlete who's willing to come into the gym three times a week, two times a week for an hour, and they get after it, it probably doesn't matter so much what you give them as long as you give them the appropriate volume and intensity. Okay. But the individual exercises within that doesn't really matter. So we might as well find the ones that you like. Okay. And the ones that you like are probably the ones that you get good at and you can overload. And then when you trust me, my job is to say, Hey, we're going to sprinkle in a couple things. We're still going to do that exercise you love, but we're going to sprinkle in a couple of these other things here because it's going to help support that exercise or it's going to help support you in, in this way. And if we can do that, those athletes, no matter what, whether they go on to play higher level volleyball, whether they stop playing volleyball and they play rec or whether they just go about their lives, that the principles and the value they get from training and that kind of enjoyment of it will serve them with whatever they choose to do for the rest of their life. I mean, when I took two years off before I, when I finished my undergrad and started my master's, I didn't play any formal volleyball there. Okay. For two years, finishing my master's, I did zero sports specific training whatsoever. Okay. I did German volume training and, and, uh, and Shaco. So it was like <laughs> five by five. Right. So I basically mm -hmm. squat benched and dead for every day, one of them for, you know, two years. And then I came back and I was way stronger and I was a way better volleyball player and I jumped way higher. And it was just because of the frequency and intensity of, of what I was exercising. It wasn't the actual components individually. So we need to create an environment where athletes love training because that probably takes care of 50% of our job to get them better at volleyball. Because if they love it, they'll keep coming. They'll trust you. 
and they'll they'll keep getting better. And I think if we can facilitate that, we'll have better volleyball players, but we'll probably just have better people in general because you know, for example, I'm done playing now. Cardio is not my favorite thing in the world to do anymore because I, I don't really get out of breath ever. But I know there's value in that for heart health as I get older, right? So I do my cardio because I love training and I'm going to mix in a few things in there that are good for me. But the love of training takes care of most things. I just got to add in a few extra specific things. And, and honestly, that's what that's what I'm going to put that as my job description. Like my goal is to help... <laughs> and mix in some things you don't like. <laughs> and that's I like it. That. I like that. I, I, I was talking, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times the last couple of weeks. My job is to help you make less errors than I made and to nerd out with you as I learn new things. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's important is, you know, I get intimidated in this space a lot because I'm relatively new and um, I have the best intentions, but it's, there's so much out there and it's so varied and there's so many methods and, you know, you have a new client coming to you and they're asking to compare you to another trainer who does it this way. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging to be kind of in the gray, but then, um, explain to the population who's looking to you for like real concrete guidance that it's in the gray, right? I think it probably, uh, you know, it, it limits the growth of, of your business or your social or whatever it might be. But I, I honestly think it's just a, a way better way to do things than just drop uh, black and white statements and try and yeah. shock the world. Yeah. As frustrated as I get with my, my slow growth of you awesome folks listening at home. Um, I, I wouldn't change it. It's as, yeah, I'd so much rather be in my gray than pretend like I'm in the black and white when hey, I'm just not. You're doing great stuff up in Kingston there, man. I wish when I was up in Kingston in like the early 2000s to 2010, that there was like volleyballs exploding in the last you know yeah. few few years and the fact that you can have like your gym up there and, and you're tailoring to, to volleyball athletes and like you know a place like Kingston to me that's like you I wish I had my own gym and like you have your own gym if I lived in Kingston I would just come work for you but obviously you know, <laughs> we're moving Sam he's coming home it's like I think there's a lot to you know my business is obviously from the training side almost exclusively online years you have online and, and in person but like that's that's my goal is to have like a small little facility for myself where i can train athletes out of but then do things online and then and then do physio as well so i mean hopefully the you know the riot crew and the kingston rock crew and everyone up there is you know using your services and appreciative of it because there's now someone up there doing like volleyball specific stuff along with other sports specific stuff not that you're only training volleyball players, but you have that knowledge to better serve that population up there. And we need someone like you in each individual city so that clubs can contact them and say, hey, you know, I, I, we're looking for some strength and conditioning for our team. It doesn't need to be complicated, but you understand that and you can structure it in a way that that makes sense because it's really what's going to be required for clubs in, in the next five years. I guarantee you almost every club will have like a, a dedicated strength and conditioning coach because it'll be cheaper to pay one person to do all their teams than it will be to try and each individual team farm it out. So yeah. maybe 
uh, we'll call Brenda and see if you can be the Kingston Rock. <laughs> I think I think Shillington. So I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tyler Shillington. He's back now and he's running oh, yeah. that. He's he's doing a really good job. And right. I help out where I can here and there, but uh, he and I chat every once in a while. He's doing a really good job. So shout out to Tyler. Um, just because I'm too embarrassed at Sam being too nice to me, so I need to deflect a little bit. So Tyler's <laughs> <laughs> also a great guy, right? So it's, yeah. it's good that the Kingston's getting this stuff. Um, because when I was there, it, it wasn't there, right? No, After, yeah. When I was in Kingston, was a kinesiology student, which was fine. It was great at the time. He knew a heck of a lot more than I did. Yeah. But it would have been nice after that uh, to uh, continue on with someone who was like volleyball specific, right? Yeah, not for sure. Holy crap, hour 20. Well done, my friend. Um, we could go for like another two hours. I know oh, we will. We will. Video about patellofemoral pain syndrome and low level open kinetic exercises that you can use that are supported in the research to help with patellofemoral pain syndrome. Hot damn. Hot damn. So if you're not following Sam, what the heck? hell are you doing uh, this one's not even coming out on my channel it's for oh. uh it's for a company that i write oh, medical for. so i work with paraffin i was sponsored by them for a couple of years and now i uh, i do it for more of a physio side of things so i just did a literature review of the 2021 clinical guidelines for managing patellofemoral pain syndrome you might like the the article because it might help you with uh just managing athletes with pfps but um, yeah, so I did a lit review of that. And then I'm now going to, we know essentially the, the not cure, but the way to get yourself out of patellofemoral pain syndrome is knee and a combination of knee and hip exercises, which sounds like great. Very right? big surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so but now I'm going to demonstrate some of these exercises that I have found productive in, in clinic. So it's not rocket science, but you got to start somewhere. But it's it's nice to do these uh, articles because it gives me a more updated understanding of the literature, but also I think provides people with something that's a little more detailed than just uh, some of the other kind of medical stuff that's out there that looks like it's just written by AI. So <laughs> that's good. I like that. You're on par with the analogies today. I'm 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 happy. Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe if we're lucky, we'll be able to do a little podcast on some PSPS or something. You just you send me a message and then hopefully I can do it like within the next 12 weeks. I'm like the last time where I canceled on you like six times. Rebecca, like, do you have that podcast today? I'm like, yeah. She's like, how many times did you cancel that? I was like, we don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam is busy. We know Sam is busy. It's can, fine. We're lucky to have Sam. I just get overwhelmed. It'll be like, I'll look at my Monday. I'll be like, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't yeah. have scheduled. Him, like, yeah, no. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. That was a mistake it's sick and it's like well now i really have to cancel but i don't want to but anyway we did it we got it done and we're gonna do it again hell yes hell yes all right um for those that are uh unfamiliar with uh, the church of gains of sam pedlo where do they find you website www.sampedlo.com instagram pedlo samuel and if, if you use tiktok you can find me on there pedlo samuel and uh, that's about it those are the and only platforms can do you still do remote uh physio for people that are not local to you yeah yeah so if you are within ontario um we can do virtual physiotherapy i'm also offering a service if uh you feel like from a technique perspective or from a game plan analysis perspective um you uh we can do video review that way over zoom 
And um, yeah, and then I have my private clients I train and uh, that's, uh, that's my life. And, and then I'm in the clinic twice a week. So if you're ever in Toronto and you need some work done in the clinic, you can always come find me. If not, we, uh, we can service anyone within Ontario. And uh, if you need strength and conditioning, call Jordan. Ah, call one of us. Both redheaded freaks. Both <laughs> redheaded nerds. All right, man. This has been fantastic. Uh, thanks for everyone for making it this far. If you did, uh, Sam's dad, I'm so sorry, but also thank you for being part of this. <laughs> and, uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Yeah, Brenda, I'm sorry. Uh, I won't tell any more stories ever. But <laughs> that, that, I was pretty. I was expecting a bit more of a, a spicy stories. I thought it was pretty tame. That was pretty good. No, fine. Can't throw Brenda under the bus. There's oh, Ben, Brenda's great. Those stories, but 2005, 2010 was a long time ago. So yeah. All right. All right, guys. We'll uh, catch you next episode.